Welcome to the 19th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant fact concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, what we're seeing relative to COVID-19 continues to be predictable. The number of deaths per day remains about 1,000, so the total count is rising approximately 7,000 to 8,000 a week. The number of people being tested remains relatively high, so the number of new cases identified is around 50,000 per day. Moreover, since many of those being tested are now younger and less symptomatic, the perceived mortality rate, as determined by the percentage of people who die Compared to the number who test positive, that ratio is declining. But we know that the number of people being identified is grossly understated due to asymptomatic cases and people deciding not to come in for care. As such, we're seeing reported rates of death dropping from 4% to around 2.4%, but it's more likely that the actual mortality is somewhere between a quarter and an eighth of that or somewhere around 0.3% to 0.6%. In the Graduate School of Business class that I teach on strategy, which begins next month, I try to bring strategic lenses to a variety of topics, and statistics is one of those. And statistics are vital when they differentiate two alternative decision directions. They are relatively irrelevant, however, when regardless of the exact number, people will take the same actions. As such, when it comes to the mortality rate, how will it influence the choices we face relative to opening schools, social distancing in businesses, and the wearing of masks? And my belief is very little, regardless of what that number is. 0.3, 0.6, 1.0, we're probably going to take the same actions. Now, if the mortality rate from this coronavirus were double digits, as it is with other coronaviruses like MERS and SARS, we might commit to closing down completely because the loss of life would be untenable. But it's not even a tenth of that number. On the other hand, if we're less than 0.1%, one-hundredth of that number, we might choose to totally ignore it. But that also is not the case. As such, although the mortality rate is interesting, I don't see it shifting our nation's course. Now make no mistake, the consequences relative to the number of people who will die before there's a vaccine 
will be two to three times higher at 1% than at 0.3 or 0.6. But as I said, I think our nation will adhere to a middle course regardless. What's important for people to understand is not exactly where that number is, but that there will be significant consequences regardless of where it is in that range. If we have to wait for herd immunity, that will require approximately 200 million people to have come down with the virus and recovered with ongoing antibodies. Assuming that were to happen, a mortality of 0.25% would still mean half a million deaths, and 0.5% would be 1 million. It is why a vaccine, even when it's only partially effective, becomes so important. But no matter what the exact mortality is, we will end up somewhere between a quarter of a million and half a million people dying from COVID-19. We may not like the number, but that's the reality. And let's stop being surprised as it rises and passes 200,000 sometime a month from now. Having said that, we should be concerned about our nation's rate of infection and therefore deaths. Over the past several weeks, the relative number of cases corrected for the population size of the U.S. has been eight times that of other rich nations, and the mortality has been six times higher. That's a major difference between us and Europe and Asia. And the reason is the resistance of people in the U.S. to don masks, self-quarantine with symptoms, and maintain social distancing. The facts are straightforward. The virus is spread by close personal contact. The mortality is determined by the number of cases. What's happening in the U.S. is exactly what the numbers predict based on the unwillingness of people to follow the approaches used in other countries. It is possible that if a vaccine doesn't come for two years, that we will find that our case rate will ultimately fall due to herd immunity from acquired antibodies and that other countries will continue to rise. But until that happens, the U.S. will continue to lead the world, both the incidence of infection and the number of deaths among the 10 countries in the world with the greatest number of new cases per day, the United States is the only high-income nation among them. Robbie, there was also some information released about the coronavirus having mutated. What do we know and what does that mean? Jeremy, this is actually good news. Most viruses, when they mutate, produce strains that are less virulent. It makes sense. If the virus kills the person with it, the virus can't be passed on to others. But milder infections make containment much harder. And it explains why COVID-19 has roared across the U.S., unlike SARS and MERS that we're able to control. And that is what researchers in Singapore have uncovered. They found a new variant of the virus. And they published the findings in Lancet this week, a virus that has mutated to a less virulent form. The people with this new strain had a reduced chance of needing an ICU bed or experiencing pulmonary failure. And of interest, 
this mutated virus elicited an even better immune response in people than the more common coronavirus structure that we had seen. Of course, if the virus changes too much, some of the vaccines being developed might end up not working, similar to what happens each year with the flu. We'll have to follow this very closely in the months to come. Yesterday, President Trump announced the FDA's emergency authorization of convalescent plasma. What is convalescent plasma? How does it work? And what are your thoughts on the emergency authorization of it? When a person has a virus, they produce antibodies, proteins that can neutralize the virus. That's how we recovered throughout much of time before there were vaccines and medications. If you take someone who has had COVID-19 and you remove their blood and you separate out the red blood cells that you're going to give back to them and keep the clear fluid that remains, that's the plasma, and it has these proteins. The idea is not new. We used plasma from people who recovered in 1918 from the Spanish flu, and more recently, we used it as part of the treatment for Ebola. At this point, we don't know exactly how effective this plasma will be. The research upon which the approval was given came from the Mayo Clinic, and they administered either a high antibody or low antibody plasma to hospitalized patients, the high antibody given earlier, the lower antibody given later, and the patients receiving higher levels of antibody sooner after admission had a significantly reduced mortality rate. It's very positive because it makes total sense that the proteins in the bloodstream that were developed in response to this particular virus would be effective at neutralizing it. Having said that, we need more proof. And it's always difficult in times of an epidemic and a pandemic to decide when to release and provide approval to new medications and treatment. Do it too soon, and you run the risk of a significant number of people being harmed way too long, and people whose lives could have been saved are not because they died before the approval was given. Personally, I think that for this treatment, one that we have a pretty good idea because we administer plasma from one patient to another for other reasons, I think the timing was appropriate. When it comes to certain medications, I would prefer to see more scientific examination and publication in peer-reviewed journals before we administer them to people. Sitting in the back of the mind of everyone was the thalidomide problem that we saw 
decades ago when the drug was released in other countries, but the FDA did not give its approval and children were spared the significant birth defects that it caused. I don't see this as a major risk when it comes to the administration of plasma. Robbie, I read the FDA also approved Yale saliva test. Um, how does it differ from the currently available alternatives? Of all of the scientific advances that have been made, I find this particular one to be one of the most exciting. First, this test is easy to administer. You just spit into a container rather than having to undergo the very uncomfortable nasal pharyngeal swab approach used to detect the virus in the other tests currently used. Second, it's relatively low price, estimated to be around $5. And finally, because the actual running of the test itself is rapid and easy to accomplish, results can become available that same day. I can imagine every American testing him or herself twice a week and immediately being able to isolate if the test is positive. That would be a tremendous advance, one that would allow us to dramatically lower the chances of someone transmitting the virus, particularly transmitting the virus to someone who was very vulnerable. What I've not seen is the scientific data on accuracy. Although the researchers from Yale have said it's equivalent to the nasal swab in identifying people infected. Of interest, the initial research was done on NBA players, the ones about to compete in the playoffs, and it was said to do a consistent job of identifying those with COVID-19. But as a sports fan, as you know, the teams have been quarantined in a bubble, and there have been no new cases to measure its accuracy against the more traditional nasal swab. Robbie, you mentioned the NBA. How are professional sports doing related to COVID-19? Jeremy, tomorrow I'll be publishing a Forbes article on this topic with lots of details. However, overall, I'd say not great. Both the Pac-12 and Big Ten have canceled their upcoming fall seasons, including football. The SEC and ACC are planning on going ahead. But whether that actually happens once players come down with COVID-19, that remains unclear. College with its parties and social gatherings leads to frequent transmission. Three schools, Notre Dame, University of North Carolina, and Michigan State, have all had to move from in-person classes that they had started to virtual ones as the number of cases on their campuses soared. As an example of the magnitude and the pace of the problem, in one week, 135 new cases were identified at the University of North Carolina. And if each of those people had 20 or 30 contacts, 
the magnitude of COVID-19 on the campus would be massive. Now, one of the growing concerns that we're seeing has to do with what's called myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart. We know that the mortality in younger individuals is lower. And so there was a certain degree of confidence that even if people caught the virus, they would be asymptomatic and would recover quickly. But this heart inflammation has now been identified in at least five Big Ten football players, along with multiple athletes from other conferences. In total, the NC2A has identified more than 12 cases. Post-COVID-19 myocarditis ended the season for Eduardo Rodriguez, the superb pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. If an athlete with this condition were to play, he'd be at added risk of sudden cardiac death for college, high school, and youth sports. This risk is likely to make schools, community programs, and parents cautious. Russia made a big deal about going into production on a vaccine. Uh, What's your take on that? Vaccines go through five trial phases. The first two only look at the safety of the vaccine, and they test it on a very small number of people. It's only in phase three that the actual efficacy of the vaccine is begun to be assessed. The Russians have not published any of their results. And all I know is what has been reported through the media. Based on that, this vaccine has only completed phase two clinical trials. That's not a high hurdle. There are many vaccines in the U.S. that are that far along. My take is that this announcement is as much about politics as science. As we said last week on this podcast, it will only be when hundreds of thousands of people have been vaccinated and we know details about the subsequent infection rate and clinical severity, they'll be able to make a reasonable prediction about the role vaccine will be able to play in controlling this pandemic. And so far, that level of detail and data have not been published by researchers from any country, including the United States. We've talked about the success New Zealand has had in eradicating the virus, and last week they reported over a dozen new cases. What does that mean? Jeremy, New Zealand responded aggressively early in the pandemic to control the coronavirus, and they identified everyone with it and everyone exposed to it and put in place mandatory quarantine and isolation. As a consequence, they had gone 102 days, three months, without an infection. As such, this new set of cases was unexpected. Health officials were able to trace the spread to a single worker in a cold storage warehouse. The genetic testing of the virus indicated that it came from outside New Zealand, most likely from England. 
The initial fear was that it had been transmitted on the wrappings around the frozen products, but more recent analysis has demonstrated it was probably brought into New Zealand by someone from that country who had traveled abroad. This particular worker and his family members had not left the nation. It's a stark reminder of how rapidly this virus can spread when societies don't have social distancing and New Zealand have been able to eliminate the use of masks and six foot spacing due to the fact that they had eliminated the virus. Before anyone realized what was happening, there were 69 cases. And when the tracers looked at the contacts, there were almost 2,000 people who needed to be quarantined to continue to control the spread. And that is in a nation where the number of cases have been zero, not 60,000 per day, as in the United States. The good news is that based on the current science, people shouldn't worry when they purchase frozen food about catching the virus from the wrapping or the contents. It's far more likely they'll catch it from the other shoppers around them, particularly anyone who's not wearing a mask. Robbie, any updates on schools? Jeremy, the reopening of schools is emblematic of the lack of a clear strategy for our entire nation. No one with decision authority has laid out the multifactorial nature of the issue and the basis on which a decision would be made. The CDC recently reported that one in four young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 had considered suicide in the month of June, with 40% saying they experienced a mental or behavioral health issue. And if that's happening in that population, it's hard to imagine those in high school, even middle school, are different. On the other hand, you have the teachers union in multiple geographies wanting schools to stay closed to protect their members, many of whom are older with chronic disease. And some parents see the risks of sending their kids to school as being so great that they'll keep them home even once schools open. As such, there are many competing priorities when it comes to the concept of reopening our schools and the risks the coronavirus creates. It's hard to compare and balance the danger to kids from the virus versus the impact on the same children from social distancing. But it's impossible to compare the risk of a child committing suicide versus a teacher dying from pneumonia. Whether people can get past their own fears to embrace a broad science-based approach is uncertain. But until the issues and the broad range of risks are discussed openly and acknowledged, stalemate is inevitable with everyone seeing things solely from their own perspective. And when that happens, they just dig in their heels at any approach that's designed for the overall good. My best guess is we're going to see schools opening and closing. We're going to see a variety of parents, 
and teachers protesting decisions to move forward. And we're going to also see the negative consequences on children that happen when they go for a year missing in-person class teaching and the social contacts that come out of the school environment. Jeremy, for the past four years, healthcare has been the number one issue on the minds of voters as they cast their ballot. Without talking about any candidate or party, how do you think voters will approach healthcare as an election issue and the coronavirus in particular come November? Robbie, I think healthcare will be a top issue for voters come November for sure. I will say, though, that the longer the pandemic lasts, at least with a lot of the people I know, uh, the less people seem to be, I don't know about caring, but the less people seem to be uh, worried about the virus and its spread and more concerned about the damage done to the economy. You know, you look at companies like Amazon and Walmart and how great they're doing right now. But the small local owned businesses, you know, the ones that are the real staples of communities and, and give them flavor like restaurants and bars and, and small retail, they've been devastated. Uh, ones that have not closed yet are financially struggling and many will likely not last much longer. Um, it's heartbreaking to watch. I think that there are other issues on the forefront now that are eclipsing the pandemic. I do think the pandemic will be part of the equation and it will be an issue people care about, but I do not think it will be the top issue or cause anyone to be a single issue voter. It, there's just too much going on right now. I think the data supports your conclusion. In New York City, 1,200 restaurants have closed. And yesterday, the U.S. Bankruptcy Court reported that there have been $46 billion companies that have filed for bankruptcy in the U.S. this year. The economic consequences have been major, although, as you also point out, for some companies, they've done very well. Jeremy, the big outbreaks of COVID-19 have been in New York, California, Florida, Texas, the Midwest, where you live, has been impacted far less. Obviously, as you pointed out, the economic challenges have been massive, particularly for farmers and small businesses. What's the mood in Iowa when it comes to what we should do going forward relative to the dangers from COVID-19? Many people across the country may not know this, but the Midwest just got hit by a massive rare storm a couple weeks ago, which was I mean, essentially the equivalent of an inland hurricane. Uh, winds where I live were over 112 miles an hour. I heard a little bit north of me, there were over 140. Uh, I was without power for a couple days and many went over a week or more without power. One of my best friend's homes is actually essentially destroyed. Uh, many people were just absolutely devastated. And you can see from satellite imagery the damage to people's crops. Um, if you look at the photos online, it's mind-blowing. I mean, honestly, I can't believe it's not bigger news. Uh, virtually everyone around here has had at least some damage from the storm, if not a lot. 
Um, this is honestly what Iowans are concerned about right now. I think this has been a hard year for Iowans for many reasons. Most people I know uh, want to return to normalcy as quickly as possible, you know, take extra precautions in regards to those most at risk, and everyone else, you know, return to work and normal life as much as possible. That's the mood of most of the people I know in Iowa. We're nearly at the half-year mark, assuming the beginning of March was the real onset of the pandemic. Where are we? Jeremy, my sense is that we're about where we started. Nursing homes remain a major issue, although the growing number of cases being reported by these facilities are predominantly across the South rather than in New York and California, where they began in the past. Last week, there were nearly 10,000 new cases from nursing homes, with a spike in deaths inevitably going to ensue in the near future as a consequence. And as the number of cases continue to rise, COVID-19 has become the third leading cause of death in the United States, ranking behind only heart disease and cancer. How is it possible that six months into this pandemic, our nation still doesn't have the protective equipment it needs in all of our hospitals, or the ability not only to test people for COVID-19, but inform them of the results in less than 24 hours. Lots of healthcare experts and media pundits talk about the need for more testing. If the results aren't back quickly, those tests don't do much to stop the spread of the disease. And without a clear approach to isolation for those who test positively, and a way to find and quarantine contacts all the testing in the world won't make much difference. And that's where we are today in the United States. The American healthcare system gravitates towards what's glittery, where there are complex interventions or overly hyped technology. As a result, we miss the biggest opportunities to reduce death and maximize health. Our response to the coronavirus is similar. We talk about testing, but don't have a plan that will make a difference based on the results. And we promote medications that will have minimal or no impact on the likelihood of someone surviving. But at the same time, we fail to wear masks and we fail to protect the most vulnerable in the population. We don't do the basics. We're in love with the Grand Slam. Frankly, Jeremy, I don't see much changing for the better for quite a while. And with the flu coming, I can imagine scenarios in which things get much worse. This virus is persistent. It's challenging. But six months into the pandemic, our efforts are pathetic. And that applies broadly to elected officials on both sides of the aisle, as well as federal and state leaders. I'd love to hear a clear strategy, one that our nation will follow. Instead, the airways are filled with a series of short-term tactics and little acknowledgement of the consequences that invariably are about to happen. As the expression goes, we're playing checkers and the coronavirus is playing chess and people across the United States 
are the losers as a result. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.